wow, I could combine like my original love from 20 years ago of like, quote unquote, really dedicating my time, my life, my energy to, to helping people. And Investopedia helped people too, because it was about financial education. People make lots of financial mistakes, but not in the same way that Meetup helps people in terms of like, you know, the, the tens of millions, hundreds of million people that are lonely in this world, helping them find community and build community. So um, 27 interviews later, uh, <laughs> I got the job. Not a joke, true, but scary to run Meetup. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. David Siegel is the CEO of Meetup the largest platform for finding and building local community. He has over 20 years of experience as a technology and digital media executive, leading organizations through innovative product development, rapid revenue growth, and digital traffic acceleration. Prior to joining Meetup, David was CEO of Investopedia, and before that, president of Seeking Alpha. He is an adjunct professor at Columbia University, where he teaches strategic planning and entrepreneurship. He hosts the podcast, Keep Connected, which is dedicated to the power of community. David's book, Decide and Conquer, lays out the framework for decision-making that leaders can use to ensure organizational and personal success. I really enjoyed having David on the podcast. And I started out by asking him if wanting to do something in the world of business was always on his mind. I always wanted to feel like I did something that was meaningful, but I didn't necessarily feel it had to be, and the work world in the broad sense, yes. I wanted to like feel like I did something that actually mattered that after 100 years, 120 years, who knows how long, I can look back and say, that was a good life worth living. And I felt that like from a teenager, young age, when I was, in college, I remember I terrified my parents and I said, I'm going to work for a nonprofit. They're like, no, not a nonprofit. You're going to make money to support a family. So I spent my summer working for a nonprofit, United Jewish Appeal, it was called the UJA Federation. And I got there and I was like, I don't want to work for a nonprofit anymore. This is not for me. So I came back to my parents afterwards. I said, okay, I decided, I figured out, I want to change the world. I want to make the world a better place. It's about education. I am going to become a school teacher. Like, no, not a school teacher. I would be proud of you to be a school teacher, but how are you going to support a family to be a school teacher? <laughs> so I spent my sophomore year working, teaching school, teaching at a school actually part-time to get that experience too. And I said, oh my God, this is hell. It was too difficult for me. So then I said, Mom, Dad, I want to become a consultant. I'm like, okay, now that works for us. <laughs> <laughs> they could deal with that one, right? And I think the great thing about, and we'll get into it, about what you've done and, and your career is you've really been able to do a lot of those things that really meant the most to you, what you just talked about. Uh, one of those things is I know you've had a few stops, but 
you teach a class and not only any class one, you know, that has to deal with entrepreneurship and also with an incredible waiting list just to get into it, extremely popular, which is hard to do when you're dealing with 19, 20, 21 year olds. But, but tell us about that, because I know for what you're doing at Columbia University, to me and, and in speaking to you in the past, that really seems to me where I can see that passion that comes out from you. Oh my gosh, it is such a passion of mine. I remember when I, about 10 years ago, my late thirties, I said to my wife, when I retire, my goal is to become a college professor. Cause I really did love teaching um, just a different age than, you know, fourth and fifth graders. And <laughs> that was more difficult. And, and my wife, who's an executive coach said to me, why are you waiting to retire? Do it now. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I've been teaching uh, at Pace and then at Columbia University for the last uh, close to 10 years. I teach entrepreneurship and strategic planning, and it is just the joy of my life. I have, besides my family, of course, I have 70 students, which seems like a very large class because it is a large class. And we had to extend it from 50 to 60 to 70. And there's, you know, as you said, a couple hundred people that are on the waiting list as well. And I think the reason for it is largely because so many professors and not again, nothing against lifetime professors, but I think there's such a deep-seated need by students to interact with people who have been in the work world, who have been leaders in the work world, and are not necessarily as academic-based. So oftentimes, a student will say to me, you know, what does the research say around this? I'm like, well, I can tell you the research of one person's experience, and that's about all I can tell you. So they're both important, and I think increasingly schools are, are adding more and more adjunct professors that have real deep business experience and life experience. And I think that's what resonates. I start every class with, let me tell you a problem that I faced this week. And I want to hear what you would do based on the problem. And it's selfish, by the way, because a lot of times we haven't resolved the problem. And after during the class, I'm like literally taking down notes. I'm like, that's a great idea. That's a good point. Thank you so much. So it's like, I, I really believe that like being a professor makes me a better CEO. And being a CEO also makes me a better professor. And, and it really is a win-win because too often I'll talk about something in class and then afterwards I'll go back after class and I'll ruminate it for a little bit. And I'll think, my God, I don't do that at work right now. And that's a problem. So it, it really is, is an absolute pleasure and a benefit of both sides. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like what you just said, I love because first off, when you look at it, from, you know, most professors, at least when I was in college, which was a long time ago, there, there wasn't much life work experience. It was about teaching. And for a class to have someone like yourself, who's done so many great things and in the last now being, of course, CEO of, of Meetup, which I'm sure they all know, it's just such a great advantage. But what I loved is that you ask them and talk to them about the challenges you're facing. And that's just so genius because it's really about what I feel makes a great entrepreneur is listening to everyone. And when you do that, like you said, it's, a, it's selfish, but really at the end of the day, it's really about you learning. It's about them learning. And I'm sure that doing that has made you feel really good and, and made them feel good when, if, of course, when you've implemented some of this stuff. Yeah, you know, the, the, I start every class, tell you two quick things. First is I start by every class and I say, who knows the movie? Catch me if you can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Everyone knows the movie. And I said, okay, in the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio was a con artist 
And he got hired by the CIA or the FBI, I forget, because of the fact that he was so good at getting around the system. So I say to the class, I was so good in college and graduate school of getting around the system, of doing the least possible work, studying at the end, forgetting everything, that have created a totally different type of syllabus and totally different grading system. So you can't get around the system. And they're like, oh man, I better drop this class. <laughs> and, then, and then in the second class, um, I go to all students and I say, in business, you have to develop products based on the needs and the wants of your users. You are my clients. You are our users. So I need to change the syllabus based on what you most are interested in learning. So we're going to rip up the syllabus and I rip up, I physically rip up the syllabus in front of everyone. And then, and I say, what do you most want to learn? And then we do a poll and we then spend the first half an hour of every class going through the topics that are most interesting to them, negotiating skills, how to find the right job, whatever the, the how to pitch investors, whatever the, the topic happens to be. And, you know, I think that resonates also. Yeah, I love how you utilize both back and forth, because really when it comes down to it and being an entrepreneur and running a business, it's really about communication and making people want to feel want and also just to get their best efforts. It's you want them doing what they want to do. And of course, you can always have that. But I love the idea. I want to talk to you before we get more current. You've had some great experience, you know, one that I wanted to go back to and, and I'm really curious about was DoubleClick. Now, some of our listeners might not even know how important what DoubleClick meant to the whole internet age, but I, I want you just to kind of take us back to that time and what you were doing there and kind of just how that maybe set the your wheels in motion for for jobs after that. I love it. Okay, so um, people that don't know why DoubleClick is so important, the internet is essentially free, and a lot of that is because of DoubleClick. So when the internet started, there were there was lots of discussions. You have subscription models to be able to access the internet. What kind of model is the right model? Ultimately, advertising became the model, and DoubleClick was the backbone of the largest um, ad serving platform. Ultimately acquired by Google for about three billion dollars. It was founded in early 1996. I started consulting to them in 1998 <laughs> and then became an employee in 1999. So joined when the stock was at 20, saw the stock go up in the, in the, in the bubble to about 250. And then by the time I left, it was down to 10. So clearly had a great impact on the organization. <laughs> <laughs> Which and David and just everyone there, it's, he's a funny guy pretty much, but for those of you too who don't recall the bubble, because we get a lot of great young listeners, entrepreneur, DoubleClick was one of those businesses that still had its place and really changed the world. Unlike some of the other dot coms during those times, like pets.com was always the the right one. But what was it that you took away that time and really thought about and that led you further down your career path? Yeah. The leadership team was, was the most impressive group of leaders I had ever met in my entire life. And it just emphasized to me the impact of, of great. I just, just two days ago, I got together with Jeff Epstein 
who yeah. ended up ultimately becoming the chief financial officer of Oracle as a partner at Bessemer. We, had, we saw each other for the first time probably 10 years, a couple of days ago. And we were discussing the fact that this is insane. Over 100 CEOs have come from the early days of DoubleClick. That's amazing. Amazing. Over a couple of dozen publicly traded company CFOs have come from DoubleClick. The number of leaders that have spurned out of, of DoubleClick is just Absolutely, you know, insane that the uh, Kevin Ryan was the was the DoubleClick CEO. He's ultimately the person that ended up acquiring Meetup, my company, out of WeWork, and has been my mentor for twenty plus years. David Rosenblatt is on the board of Twitter and CEO of First Dibs, and the list goes on and on. People talk about the, the PayPal mafia of successful leaders. The DoubleClick mafia in the New York metro area is kind of as strong, probably as strong regionally. So it was a very special time. And I also happened to have worked in human resources there, which is not very common. Remember, I was working in human resources and the CEO of DoubleClick, Kevin Ryan, came over to me and he said, David, you know, what are the kind of things that you focus on? So I said, well, I focus on recruiting top talent or focus on, on managing people. I focus on motivating people. I focus on building the right organizational design, aligning process and strategy with, with business operations. He's like, that's pretty much the same thing that I do as a CEO. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I could be a CEO one day. And that's how I decided to kind of move out of human resources and ultimately uh, take the path towards a CEO. Now, tell us, before we get into Meetup, just tell us exactly what you were doing in the business prior to joining Meetup. Oh, sure. Okay. I was the CEO of the world's largest financial education company, and it's called Investopedia. We have about I still say we, because you know, once, once <laughs> you, you, never leave, leave. You, you never leave, right? You still feel a pride when you see the company succeeding. So we have uh, 20 to 30 million uh, monthly users, and it was a real success story. I joined the company was about 11 million dollars in revenue. Four years later, we grew it to 35 million dollars in revenue, uh, and then ultimately successfully sold the company. And it was, and we went for about 27 employees. I was probably 27 to over 150 employees and just grew a lot of people's careers and has grown significantly as well, actually, since then. And I had left the job and I thought I would take a couple of some time off because there was a, a high value creation. I got some benefit from that. And then I got a knock on the door, you know, from, from someone who's on the board of WeWork and said, I have to introduce you to the famous Adam Newman. <laughs> Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork. Said, yeah, I want, we want you to become the first outside CEO of Meetup. And I'm like, Meetup, I love Meetup. Meetup's all about community building. Meetup is all about kind of the loneliness epidemic and, and, and helping people. And I said, wow, I could combine like my original love from 20 years ago of like, quote unquote, really dedicating my time, my life, my energy to, to helping people. And Investopedia helped people too, because it was about financial education. People make lots of financial mistakes, but not in the same way that Meetup helps people in terms of like, you know, the, the tens of millions, hundreds of million people that are lonely in this world, helping them find community and build community. So um, 27 interviews later, <laughs> I got the job. Not a joke, true, but scary to run Meetup. And uh, it's been um, an experience since. Yeah, I bet. So tell, what was it like meeting Adam and going through that entire process? You know, obviously everyone knows now there's, you know, a show out on, on the whole WeWork. I'm sorry, yeah, on the, on the WeWork, you know, story. In fact, last week's episode, we had Julie Rice on who founded SoulCycle and then went to work there. What was that like for you? Oh man, Julie's Julie's great. I've heard amazing things about her. I can't wait to listen to the episode, actually. Good you told me. <laughs> Here's what I like to say: that when people watch We Crash and they say to me, Oh, We Crash was an exaggeration, you know, how is actually living at WeWork different than the We Crash show? 
or the Cult of We book or our Billion Dollar Loser book. I said, the only difference is that real life was actually crazier. And they're like, come on. I'm like, no, no, no. There are things that happened in real life that couldn't be put in the show because they just wouldn't have been believable. So they had to take them out of the show because they wouldn't have actually happened in real life. And they're like, give me an example. I'm like, okay, I I gave it, I could give you an example now if you want. So (laughs) remember in the show that there was a big, um, what's it called? A, uh, that you hit a bong? No. Yeah, like a gong. Gong, not a bong. Bong is what you hit in college. Right, right, right. That's right. That's for my students. Okay, there was a big big gong. I said, we work on it. And every time they had a big sale, they hit the gong. They used to oftentimes like take someone and use their head to hit the gong. It was a C-level executive who ended up having a concussion going to the emergency room hospital, bleeding out out of the person's head from that. That wasn't in the show. Cause like, who would do that? That's insane. That happened. Unbelievable. It was a example of a, a complete and utter misalignment of cultures between WeWork and Meetup. And where, whereas Meetup was kind of a, a slow moving nonprofit-esque almost, and it was very non-profitable actually, but so was WeWork. So I guess they were similar there. Wanting to help the world cause WeWork was all about just growth for growth's sake and uh, just very masculine, you could say, type culture that WeWork was about, um, very fraternity kind of oriented. Meetup had been very focused on, on social justice and racial equity and equality. And the majority of our leadership team was and still is uh, women. And uh, just a very, whereas WeWork didn't even have a, a female on the board of directors, <laughs> which is, you know, absolutely. Um, Unbelievable. Appalling. So very, very misaligned. So tell us then getting bought out of WeWork was probably a good thing. And what were you most excited about and how did it happen? And then let's talk about Meetup. Sure. I mean, it was such a crazy thing. I'm sure we'll get to it, but like I needed like therapy afterwards. My <laughs> therapy was writing a book basically to like deal we'll with, get to it. <laughs> with how insane the situation and what it was, which which was, I guess, less expensive than therapy. I, I, I don't <laughs> a lot know. more time. Well, oh, you know well what? It, it, no, it was probably was more time. So on a per hour basis, it was definitely more expensive than therapy, perhaps. Anyhow, you know, when we announced to everyone that that we work with selling us, there was, I remember a woman in the back of the room that just jumped out, raised her hands in the air and screamed, hallelujah. She was <laughs> just great. so excited about it. I mean, there were so many people that just really didn't like being a part of, uh, of the organization and being in the news and watching because every meetup employee had WeWork stock, watching the stock yeah. go from 47 billion to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, the IPO getting canceled, people wondering what was going on, people thinking that WeWork could just shut meetup down. We were taking me up from a break-even business to losing $20 million a year, $20 million a year. So many just mishandlings and, and misincentives and, and challenges that it was it was a relief to hear, but it was there's a people have status quo bias. And even if you're in a bad situation, oftentimes you'd rather be in that bad, bad situation than the fear of the unknown. So for a lot of people, even though they were unhappy, it was just the fear of the yeah. unknown. What's going to happen to this to meet up under like a new buyer? We know the current world. It's not very good, but we know it. So there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. A lot of fud. <laughs> and how were how were you able to at that point going from under WeWork's umbrella to your own business? How were you able to make those changes and implement those changes? Where today, I mean, it's incredible how well the business is doing, what you're doing, even after, and we'll get into it, the pandemic. But what was it at that time 
was going through your mind that you knew you needed to change as far as culture and mindset? Yeah, I mean, Robert, I took a page right out of my DoubleClick days from 20 years ago that we were referencing, which is you have to build the best management team that you can. And that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to build success. You know, Jim Collins is, you know, famous book, good to great talks about first who, then what? So I remember I met with a WeWork team and I said to them, okay, who are the keepers? Who are the people in the management team that we, you know, we should continue to to stand and meet up. And there was just silence. And I went, no, 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 like, give me the names of like someone who, who do we keep? And they said like, well, maybe one person, we're not sure within six months, we had out of the 12 people that were reporting to me, 11 or 12 were replaced. And wow. within one year, we had an entirely new management team. So you got to start with having the right people that are leading the organization. You know, too often when you have people that have been around, it's not always the case. You make a suggestion, you share a thought. And the answer is always, well, we tried that once before and it didn't work. Okay, when did you try it? How long ago? What did you actually do? It's just kind of this, you know, a certain attitude that is not oftentimes conducive towards change management and, and, and success. So that was kind of the first big step. And the second step was just making sure that we were a profitable, sustainable business. So we went from losing $18.5 million in, 20, in 2019 wow. to during the pandemic, um, making $3 million in 2020. So a $21.5 million kind of turnaround. Our revenues weren't all that impacted, fortunately, by the pandemic which is extraordinary in itself, considering you couldn't meet up in person. <laughs> right, and same at least company. in person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we're able to kind of find a, a different cost structure, you know, that and, and ended up working for the company. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hiring great employees and keeping them is part of the growth plan for your business. Trinet offers full-service HR solutions tailored to small and medium-sized businesses so you can retain talent and grow. We're talking access to top benefits, help with compliance and payroll, even when your team is remote or out of state. The works. Because Trinet gets it. Your people matter to your business. Learn more about their HR solutions at trinet.com slash podcast. That's T-R-I-N-E-T dot com slash podcast. Trinet. Incredible starts here. And we're back. In my mind, oh, meetup. They must have gotten crushed during the pandemic. How hard must have that been for David? But tell us how you were able, first off, to go from in a hole of $18 million where you're just coming out to profitability, especially once this pandemic hits, because I could imagine you're calling everyone in and trying to figure out how you're just going to survive. Yeah. So when we started seeing all of the um, 95% events literally evaporate in just a couple of days in China, evaporate, canceled it in China. And then we started seeing the same thing happening in Italy. We said, okay, wait, this is spreading past China. And then we're like, this isn't going to hit the US. Of course it hit. Meetup actually had one of the first two cases of COVID, how ironic, while we were in a WeWork building in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And so we were we were in early March, first week in March, we had to vacate the building. And I think our focus was, you know, how do we essentially, we don't know how long this is going to last for. I got everyone together and I said, what's our mission? Is our mission IRL? Is our mission getting together in person, IRL meaning in real life? Or is our mission about keeping people connected? What is our mission? And some people that have been around for a while said, no, we're completely against virtual groups. We have not allowed virtual groups. In fact, um, virtual groups 
could have generated for the company probably tens of millions of dollars in its history. And they were always rejected because because of the focus, which I admire tremendously of kind of in-person only is the best connections. But when the only alternative is online, then you can go, you go online. We ultimately, within one week, we launched an MVP, a minimum viable product, got everyone together. We didn't have location-based information. So we, every, all events had to be tied to a location. So we found like an island in the South Pacific where there weren't, weren't any events, but it was listed as a location. We had all online events for some the Faroe Islands, uh, I think, were happening in the first couple of months just to launch something quickly with our with our current you know spaghetti code that had been built up over eighteen right. years of mess. And uh, since the uh, since we launched that, we've had now over three and a half to four million online events. Over 30, 40 million people have attended online events, and uh, you know they're here to stay. It's still twenty percent of our events, despite the fact that so much of the world has moved back to in person. And it it has tremendous value for uh, so many people. If you're in a small city and God forbid you have cancer and there's a cancer support online group, wow, you could tap into that. If there's a people who love horror films group, which there are many of and money, you know, all these different types of groups, then you could find your people no matter where you are. And it's very powerful for people. And, and it's great to have, you know, global experiences. I talked to someone recently that lives in Kansas city that had a ecstatic dance yeah. meetup group. You know, I'm the kind of person that enjoys that kind of stuff anyway. And, he's, and she said, you know, I used to have like three, four five people come when it was local only. Now we had an event, 30 people came from 20 different countries and it, it was awesome. So there's, yeah. there's a room for both. There, it, totally. And I, and I, and I love that. And I, I want to get to your book, your therapy. And I want to talk about that. I want to ask you one last question on meetup moving forward now, right. With on a great track, being able to not only survive, but thrive during the pandemic. Where do you see the business going? Because, you know, you do have the room for virtual. You do have the room for, you know, you people are wanting to get back out. What is the the game plan, let's say, or where would you like to see yourselves in, in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the Roaring Twenties happened 100 years ago, right after World War One. Right after the first, right after the Spanish flu, people were in such dire need of getting out and doing things. And it's only two years into the 2020s. This now we're going to see 23 and 24, the roaring 20s again, happening in this world of desperate um, excitement about getting out and doing things. And Meetup will hopefully be leading that charge. I think one big area that I'm intrigued by and we're spending time focused on is how do we right now our organizers pay a, a subscription fee. How do we turn our organizers into people who can make money on Meetup? How can we enable them to get donations, have charge more charge dues to members if they want to, get money for sponsorship, more sponsorship opportunities for their groups? How do we help them to not just defray all their costs, but actually make meeting, make a side, side gig, side income being a Meetup organizer? And that could really unlock you know, even more growth for the company. Yeah, I like that idea. So let me ask you, let, let's talk about the book. And from the conversation and talking to you, having to go to your parents, it seems like you always wanted to do good. You always wanted to educate, right? Tell us about the book. I love the concept, the idea. And tell us about what it means to you in terms of of writing this book and what you wanted to get out of it. Sure. Uh, so the book is called Decide and Conquer. And it's a book really about helping people make smarter decisions in business and life. And I just 
you know, throughout my entire life, I've been obsessed with decision-making quote that had just always resonated with Teddy Roosevelt's quote, which is, you know, the best decisions are great decisions. The next best decisions are bad decisions. The worst decision is no decision. And how many people do we know that just have analysis paralysis and are just stuck and can't get out of their own heads and they can't move on. And the problem is just like lean startup, you want to have a minimal viable decision. You want to figure out how you can make this lo- the, the, the easiest, quickest decision so you could iterate it on it so you could learn from it. So I've been, always been obsessed with, with decision-making and decision biases. I, re, I referred to status quo bias beforehand, but I didn't want to write like a boring business book about, yeah. you know, whatever, decision-making. I want to write a story. I want to write like a crazy roller coaster story of just the ups and downs in career and life and, and business, et cetera. And WeWork really created the, uh, the, the platform for lots of insane experiences. Meetup during the pandemic created a lot of challenges and insane experiences. So, you know, as soon as the pandemic hit in early March, I just would wake up like really early, like five o'clock in the morning with tons of energy. And in two months I wrote 75,000 words. That's amazing. (laughs) Cause, uh, having gone through it, it just, for you to be able to do that while you're CEO of this company, while you're taking care of your kids, I give you more credit, even if the book wasn't good, but I know it is good because I've read it. And I do want to talk. I I love that Teddy Roosevelt quote, because there are a lot of listeners we have here who have incredible ideas. A lot of our listeners are people who are sitting in corporate America, who the one thing that is the hardest thing is really for them to just jump off the diving board, to do it, to go for it. Is there anything you can say to those people? How do you get them to face their fears and anxieties and, you know, really go for it? So I would say understand where your inertia is coming from. Most often, but not always, inertia comes from a fear of failure, a perfectionist mentality where if I make a mistake, it's going to be a public mistake. Everyone's going to know about it. And I don't have another bite at the apple. And just because I failed in this mistake, I am now a failure and people personalize those things. And I say that's everyone, but for many people, that's what it comes from. I have a different perspective. My perspective is I'm going to roll something out and it's going to be a failure. It's not going to be great, but I'm going to get enough smart people to look at it and give me feedback on it that I'm going to iterate and make it better. So my first manuscript that I wrote was like a mess, <laughs> a total mess. And I gave it to um, a publisher, a friend of mine, and they were like, this is great. It's a mess, but it's, <laughs> it's great. And, you know, not even close to launch workable. So the key is I really believe in just, again, like the lean startup mentality for life. You just have to go out, do things. That's how you're going to learn the most from it. And not to personalize a mistake and a failure. In the book, I talk all about my mistakes and my failures. And I think that resonates for so many people to be oh. so public and vulnerable and open about it. And I do that purposely because I just want more people to understand that, quote unquote, I'm a successful CEO, whatever that exactly means. And look at all the mistakes this person made. Right. So therefore, it's okay. It's okay. In fact, it's great to make a lot of mistakes. I I love that. You know, I love that for children, which I try and teach my children and kids because it's all, you know, there it's even harder. But for the entrepreneurs out there, and I will say having interviewed 150 successful business people like yourself, 
if I told you Lululemon, we recently had on Chip Wilson, they were going to go bankrupt five times. We had, I'm drawing a blank, Y Combinator, uh, one of the founders, and they talked about Airbnb coming to them on their last legs, trying to create these cereal boxes to like raise money. But I, I just think of like how many failures then they went through, but had to pick themselves off the mat. And I always... I love the quote, a winner is just a loser who tried one more time. And I use that. So I really relate. I, I think with your book, I think you hit it on the head that where my, even at this stage, not that I've been super successful, I've started businesses and I've sold them and I've, I'm on, I have a third business that's doing pretty well, but like, I still am like, fearful and like, you know, that, that it's going to fail and people are going to look at me as a failure. And the funniest thing is 90% of my friends don't even know I started a new business. It's been like two years and like, no one really cares, right? They, they don't care. People think that, that others care about them a lot more <laughs> right. than they actually do. People are their own things that they're dealing with on their own. No one really think, cares that much. I mean, it's Elon Musk, maybe people care about what he does for whatever reason, but not many people care right. what Siegel or Robert Tuckman are doing. No. <laughs> so tell us in, in terms of you moving forward and having the success at uh, Meetup, continuing, is there anything else? I mean, you've done, written a book, teaching two universities. Is there anything else you see yourself wanting to do that stems back to kind of those early thoughts you had before, you know, you retire, if you ever do, or as you're, I take your wife, she was smart, just do it now because you never know. But anything there that still is in you that you feel like you would like to do? Oh, everything. <laughs> I have a list of just, I'm not kidding, a hundred things that I want to do before uh, I meet my maker. Uh, everything from traveling to all seven continents to, I love history, running historical yeah. tours around around Europe is something that I kind of, I would love to do at one point in time. Volunteering in, 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 in Africa and other type of countries for, for a period of time just to help people. The list is a mile long of things that I would love to be able to do. And whenever I decide that I'm not going to be, let's say, working full-time anymore with them or whatever that happens to be, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be working harder and longer. <laughs> exactly. But I'm not an official <laughs> position person. And just be doing very different things. So I think, you know, the term retirement, I think for many people is a misnomer. And yeah. really just one's pivoting one's career to do a bunch of other of, to other opportunities to help people in, in hopefully different, different ways. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the secrets in terms of really being able to enjoy your life as you age and get older. And I will tell you, great podcast, Bowery Boys. I'm a New York City history. I love that. So one day, maybe when we're, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, and we want to do some, t I would love to do some tours with you uh, of New York of City. Tons <laughs> of fun. I mean, Harlem, Harlem, the, the history of Harlem is just fascinating. Incredible. Or, or downtown Five Points, right? Where yep. Gangs of New York comes from and what that was like. And, you know, and then, and then soon enough, it'll be 10 years, people talking about what COVID was like during these times. And I, I just, I find it so interesting, but David, I, I really appreciate coming on the podcast, learned so much. I assume where everyone can get your book, where it's on all the Amazons. I, I mean, like you can get yeah, it the, anywhere the, these days. Yeah, And the audio version is great on Audible. I, I, I actually really like uh, the audio version as well. Kindle and uh, 
Yep, you pick up to sign a conger anywhere. So, so that thank is you, true. I enjoy this a ton. Thank and you. yes, and if you've got a lot of audio people here, so I definitely recommend that. And thanks again for coming on. Uh, just so happy to have you. And with all your success, uh, we wish you even more. And and really, like as I say to my listeners, I recommend the book. It's as you talked about some of the hardest things of just making decisions and and right decisions, and just really getting out there and just going for it is is so important. So thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.